You're listening to Heart of the Ark podcast from the Office for Evangelization in the Archdiocese of Newark. We're coming to you to bring knowledge and some courage as we voyage through this life as missionary disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Jennifer Benke, and I'm co-hosting this podcast with my friend and colleague, Father John Gordon. Well, hello, dear friends. Uh, This is Father John Gordon from the Office for Evangelization uh, with you once again at our Heart of the Ark podcast. As we shared at our initial podcast, we take our name from the new Ark, the Newark city that we are in, the Archdiocese that we are in. And the heart of that, in one sense, as I look out my window, I see the Cathedral Basilica of the Sacred Heart. And so the heart of the Ark, in one sense, is our Cathedral Church. But it's also the heart of each person who is part of the people of God that are here in this diocese and beyond, because all of us are on this new arc, as it were, of evangelization. Our topic today is we're going to look a little bit about from the apostolic exhortation of Pope Francis called the joy of the gospel. In Latin, it's Evangelii Gaudium, and it was done in the year 2013 in response to the ordinary synod that was done in 2012. So the synod was called for by Pope Benedict XVI, and then Pope Francis wrote the apostolic exhortation in response to that. And so my guest today is Brian Hansberger. He's in charge of many things, but he'll share a little bit about what he does in terms of the working for the Diocese of Patterson. But what I can first say about Brian is he is a man who is captured by God. He is a man who loves the Lord. He is faithful to his family and to the relationships that spring from his family and from his life in the Lord. I consider Brian a brother and a friend, as well as a colleague. Uh, Several years ago, we had the privileged opportunity, myself and Brian and his wife, to actually do a bit of the Camino together. That was about six years ago. I think I still have some blisters from that, but uh, most of all, I have uh, the enduring friendship that we already had before that, that we continue. So anyway, uh, here's Brian Hansberger. Thank you, Father John, and happy to be here. So, Brian, if you could just tell us a little bit about what your work is with the Diocese of Patterson. I can break it down into three different things. So, for one, I'm the executive director of St. Paul Inside the Walls, Mm -hmm. which is a Catholic center for evangelization for the Diocese of Patterson. We're located in a somewhat central part of our diocese, and our vision and mission could be summarized as offense. Many people in the parish context oftentimes expect people to come to them. And they they may call that evangelization, and indeed it is to a certain degree, but the mission of St. Paul Inside the Walls is to actually reach out to those who have no faith at all, people who are not members of parishes. And we try to be a halfway house where we invite people inside the walls, build them up to the place where they can participate in a parish. So that's job number one. Job number two is I'm the Diocesan Director of Mission and Technology Integration. So what that means is that I scrutinize and and consider the different technologies and see how they could fit into the way that we do mission in our diocese, both at the diocesan and the parish level. So that's an always working job as technology continues to emerge rapidly. And then the last thing I do is I work for the seminary. So I run a program called the Certificate in Catholic Evangelization for the Immaculate Conception Seminary at Seton Hall. And that is a program that benefits the Archdiocese of Newark, the Diocese of Patterson, and the Diocese of Metuchen. We have members, parishioners, and priests from all three 
of those dioceses in the program right now. It's so encouraging to see someone whose gifts and passion match the job they have, what they get a paycheck for, so to speak. It's a privilege and it's not something I ever expected. Mm. Uh, so it's a gift. I have a lot of respect for you know the coal miner Yes. Uh, who doesn't yes. like his job, but but does it. I realize and I don't take it for granted that, you know, I'm in a privileged place. That I can relate to that as well in terms of being in a privileged place in terms of my own life as a priest, but also in the particular assignment I have in terms of secretary for evangelization. So mm-hmm. I, I share with you that gratitude to the Lord. I realize because of this, I think I'm going to be called to a higher account on Judgment Day in terms of how have I used the talents, you know, the one, the three, the five talents that have been given. Uh, if I've been given a whole bunch of talents and not in terms of myself, but in terms of opportunity, uh, then I dare not bury them. And so I, I think I that, feel the that, same way. Father yeah. John. I and I think that, that that is great to feel that way, I think, because it feels with zeal as opposed to fear. Mm-hmm. You know, if it were to paralyze me, I'd say, OK, time to get out. If it motivates me to be all the more attentive and passionate and creative and try things, some things work, some things don't. You know, we are sowers of seed. As mm. much as a parable of that is about the different kinds of soil, it's also a parable of the generosity of the sower, mm. uh, sowing seed where it looks like it would not succeed. The broadcaster. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> very good. Yeah. So that kind of leads us into what we want to talk a little bit about today, this apostolic exhortation, the joy of the gospel, which I think is one of the maybe unsung masterpieces of Pope Francis uh, early on in his pontificate. It stands in the a tradition that began, in terms of a modern tradition, that began in 1975 with Pope Paul VI's Apostolic Exhortation on Evangelization in Our Time, which was a response to the Synod. And uh, in one sense, I looked at that particular document that came out in 1975, the Holy Year, 10 years after the end of Vatican II, as a summary of Vatican II. As a matter of fact, I think it quotes all 16 Vatican II documents in it to some extent. But it set the kind of tone in which Pope, Paul, Pope St. Paul VI said that purpose of the church, the reason for the church's existence is to evangelize and to say that so succinctly. And then Pope St. John Paul II, Mission of the Redeemer, now this work of Pope Francis, The Joy of the Gospel. And in the very beginning, he says, I, I love this, I invite all Christians everywhere at this very moment to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ or at least an openness to letting him encounter them. Whenever we take a step toward Jesus, we come to realize that he is already there waiting for us with open arms. Let me say this once more. God never tires of forgiving us. We are the ones who tire of seeking his mercy. And with that kind of evangelical zeal and fervor, Pope Francis kind of goes to town with this, with this document. And like so many papal documents, It's very, very wordy. The edition I have is almost 200 pages, Um, you know, so we're obviously not going to go through this whole thing. But in chapter two in particular, which is titled Amid the Crisis of Communal Commitment, he begins to talk about some of the challenges as well as opportunities currently in terms of what's going on around us, but also what he sees going on within the heart of the church, within the heart of those who want to pick up the mantle of evangelizing. He begins in paragraph 50 by saying, what I would like to propose is something more in the line of an evangelical discernment. It is the approach of a missionary disciple 
an approach nourished by the light and strength of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about, we need to distinguish clearly what might be a fruit of the kingdom from what runs counter to God's plan. And so the awareness that this is not a bottom-up kind of work, but this is rather a response to a top-down initiative of grace. And so that evangelical discernment is like, Lord, what's out there? What are the needs? And what are you blessing? Where are you at work, Lord God? And we can help clear away some of the debris to help people get to that. How do you see that? I hope I answer your question well, but in response to your whole introduction to the letter in general, you know, I think that this is, it's like a Magna Carta or an introduction to Pope Francis's whole way of, of thinking about church, this document. Yes. And one of the first documents he quotes in Evangelii Gaudium here is Evangelii Nuntiandi. Right. You know, written by Pope Paul VI, we were just talking about. And I'm very influenced by Paul VI and Evangelii Nuntiandi. That is just as much of a document of discernment about evangelization, about a stylistic approach, about 20th century context for evangelization. I just think that this is exactly what Pope Francis is doing here. And I think that he is a 21st century Pope. He's not changing the mission or the vision. He's asking the question, like, what are the signs of the times here in the 21st century? What evangelization adjustments need to be made? In parts one and two, right from the get-go, he starts talking about what these are. Yes, and I think he's a unique perspective. You know, every Pope is Pope for the whole world, as it were, the whole church, but each man comes from his own background and situation. Mm -hmm. And we trust the Holy Spirit has prepared that in that brother. And mm -hmm. so here we are for the first time, at least simply in our modern times, of a Southern Hemisphere Pope. Yes. Um, not a first world country Pope. And a one who, when he speaks of the peripheries and the margins, he's speaking so that they can come into the gospel, into the life of the church, because that's what he lived and that's what he experienced. And he saw so many ways in which, in the course of his own lifetime, it seems, where the church seemed to side with the establishment in a way that made it difficult for people to experience the church's good news to mm. a radical shift to the church of identifying with the church of the poor. We in the Northern Hemisphere, in the first world, have not made that shift quite mm. so well yet. And so for some people, some of the initiatives and expressions of Pope Francis can be challenging. That's why this, I think, is so helpful, because this is not. This is clear. This is not challenging in that regard. This is rather one that just calls us to who we are, what we're called to be. And I love how he describes some challenges of today's world. And he says to them clearly, no to some of these challenges. Like, this is not an acceptable paradigm for us. It's so funny. He starts entire sections with the title of no. Yeah. <laughs> no to <laughs> economic disparity or whatever. It's comical. I've never seen it in a papal document, something so explicit. You know, the, the language of the document is less academic than what yes. we expect from most popes. Indeed, Pope Francis is from the Southern Hemisphere. It's fun for that to be the case because the majority of the world's population is in the Southern Hemisphere. That's right. That's so right. the majority of the money is in the Northern Hemisphere and the influence, right? So this is the first time Pope from outside of Europe is speaking. Yes. As Americans, it's very challenging, I think, to read this and to understand Pope Francis as a whole. In my opinion, this is my humble opinion, the American media doesn't understand Pope Francis. The American Catholic Church doesn't quite understand Pope Francis. In fact, the only way to understand this document 
and Pope Francis as a person is to take off your American hat. Mm. You have to think globally. Yes. You have to put yourself in the place of somebody in the Southern hemisphere, somebody in the developing world. And only then can you understand the man. Yeah, I think, too, that even this rejecting the paradigms out there, mm-hmm. uh, I think, stands in the tradition of Pope St. John Paul II, who refused uh-huh. to accept yeah. Europe as it was. In other words, mm. oh, you've got the Soviet sphere and you've got mm. the democratic sphere, and this, we just have to live with that. He refused to accept that. And 10 years after he was elected pope, the Berlin Wall fell. Communism, in terms of its stranglehold on Eastern Europe, was lost. He refused to accept things just as it is. You have to make accommodations with the world as it is. Mm-hmm. No, we have to acknowledge the world as it is. We don't have to accommodate it. If anything, we're called to change it, to baptize it, to transform it. And so he doesn't deny it. Like, as you said, you, he says, no, like no to an economy of exclusion. Mm-hmm. We have to say thou shalt not to an economy of exclusion <laughs> and inequality. A globalization of indifference has developed. The culture of prosperity deadens us. And we who, by God's grace, seek to make the gospel the paradigm for our lives, not our economic culture, who seek Mm. to live in a culture of life rather than a culture of death, as Pope St. John Paul II would say, recognize the truth of this. You know, recognize that this this is so very, very true. And so many people uh, try in their own little ways, and I think those are important ways because. We have a lot to do on the institutional level, but it also is done on a very personal level. So when people from wealthy parishes are coming to the inner city to take their turn at a parish-sponsored soup kitchen, that's wonderful. Yes, it's a little drop in the bucket on one level, but it's it's personal. Mm -hmm. You know, that approach that the Catholic worker has taught us, the personalistic approach. I need to be involved in doing something for the margins. And in one sense, one of the things that we realize, especially as we go through this, but in our own reflection, I think you and I will realize, and among those who are most marginalized are those who do not accept the gospel. They might look like they are at the center of power. They might look like they're at the center of what makes things happen. But in fact, they are the most marginalized of all because they do not know the truth Mm. that sets them free. Indeed. I remember Mother Teresa, after establishing all of these institutions for the poor throughout the developing world. She came to the United States and encountered a poverty she had not encountered before. Yeah, yeah. She, she would say we were the poorest country she served, Yeah, yeah. which is horrifying when you think of it, because that's a poverty that we are responsible for. The poverty of those who are involuntarily poor mm-hmm. do not have enough of this world's goods. That is not of their own making. That is exploitation uh, that has occurred. But for those of us who live in a place of privilege, that is not the case, you know. I think of even the poor in our own land who are wealthy compared to other parts of the world. Yes. Um, that doesn't mean it's, that doesn't give us a past how the poor are in our country, but we cannot appreciate the, the abject poverty. And the church has always had the stance. Missionaries have always approached the gospel as I need to feed the whole person, not just the soul or the spirit. Mm. So I need to provide medical care. I need to educate. And Jesus, of course, healed and taught. And so we carry on that ministry with hospitals and healthcare work and schools and other uh, outreaches. But it's also that we're not just doing that. We're trying to feed the whole person, which also means uh, bringing the gospel to them and making them aware. 
His next one was no to the idolatry of money. The worship of the ancient golden calf has returned in the new and ruthless guise in the idolatry of money and the dictatorship of an impersonal economy lacking a truly human purpose. Man mm. is reduced to one of his needs alone, consumption. I was thinking about this the other day. We have a conversation about uh, money and finances with somebody recently. And I invite our listeners to consider if you look at any of your problems or most of your problems or all of your problems that you have, whatever they are, if your first thought is money would help solve that problem, that has become an idol. If money is the resolution that that's an idol, but also a product, right? like a consumer product. I feel that way. And Pope Francis gets into that. And Pope Francis isn't making these ideas up on his own. You know, this is, this is part of a long history of papal criticism of capitalism and materialism. In fact, uh, Pope John Paul II says that one of the fruits of capitalism is materialism, uh, the reduction of life to goods and products. And of course, Pope John Paul II is the first pope to actually be rather approving of capitalism as an institution, but he moderates it and critiques it and yes. suggests ways of making it better. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I think his approval, as it were, is because of all the other mega systems out there. Mm -hmm. This is the most chance for helping the disadvantaged. But in fact, within the life of the church, we are less capitalist in terms of religious orders, in terms mm -hmm. of how we invite uh, wealthier parishes to support poorer parishes, wealthier dioceses to support poorer dioceses. Mm -hmm. And the wealth might not be just in finances. It might be, you've got more people, so send some missionaries to us type of thing. So yes. the church has always had a bigger perspective that said, we need to have, you know, kind of balance all this out as much as possible. Mm. But you're right, his approval is qualified. He, in Centesimus Anus, that's when he starts talking about capitalism and and that was, I think, written in 1991. So right as the Soviet Union fell apart, I hate to say it this way, but it was kind of like a victory encyclical. Oh, sure, <laughs> like, sure. Like communism fell apart. Now the world has adopted capitalism. And this is generally good, but here's some warnings. And I think that uh, Pope John Paul II would adjust the document if he were to see what has happened in the last 20 or 30 years. And I think that that's also what we get in Evangelii Gaudium here with Pope Francis. So I see this document from Pope Francis at the beginning of his pontificate as, yes, an adjustment in evangelization like Evangelii Nuntiandi from Pope Paul VI, right? But it, he also, in the opening paragraphs, starts quoting the economic teachings of the past popes right in the beginning as well. Yes. It's a cool document. I'm riveted by it because it's a combination of economic adjustment. What should the church be doing in economics and evangelization? He combines the two, which is a crazy thought. I think most Americans, remember I was taking, I was talking about taking off your American hat to read this document and to understand Pope Francis. We as Americans like to separate money from church or evangelization, right? But no, Pope Francis believes that our financial decisions affect other people and that every financial decision is an act that should be done with charity in mind. Well, we are you know, thinking of others with every product that we buy. We're thinking of others with every vote that we cast, with the economic systems that we support or don't, don't support. 
you know, you're absolutely right, Brian. As human beings, every act is a moral act. Unlike non-human beings, there are no moral acts. There's a moral neutrality. There's natural evil, a rabid mm. dog, for example, a hurricane, for example, but they have no morality to them. There's no responsibility. But every act of ours, not just those that involve what we think to call ethics, mm -hmm. every action of ours is a moral act. And therefore, because of the economic reality that it is economics that to a large extent uh, runs the world, you know, as opposed to military might, as opposed to linguistic overpowering or whatever, it's really economics. Mm -hmm. The reason why English is the language of the world is because of the economic powerhouse that the United States has been. And the reason other places are seen as such a threat to us are because economically they are so strong and they're not relying on us. And therefore we see them as challenging. Every yeah. economic decision has a, a moral consequence and therefore has a consequence for how we live the gospel and how we therefore able to share the gospel. That's how we get into discernment. So you quoted Pope Francis in the document here about evangelical discernment, to be very intentional about the decisions that we're making is a part of what he's calling us to do. And that's a very personal thing. He's not a pope of just interpersonal relationships, but also he cares about the government. He cares mm -hmm. about how governments work. And sure. it's not one or the other, right? Yes. It's both. He cares yes. about how the church acts, about how individuals think, sure. about how governments think. And he's not afraid to tell governments what to do. No, you're <laughs> right. Yeah. At the same time, like every person, He's limited. He's not an econ economist. He's not mm -hmm. a political scientist. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be able to say, oh, what are the big themes that are universal and how are they applied where we might you know, differ at times? But mm -hmm. I think until we get these big themes, and I think this is where this uh, apostolic exhortation is so helpful because it's not just his big themes. They're the big themes of the gospel. One of the groups he quotes often in these documents is various other Episcopal conferences throughout the world. He's consciously recognizing that his perspective, while unique and Holy Spirit-driven, that he's the Pope, are, is also limited. And so he quotes the French Bishops Conference and the, the U.S. Bishops Conference and these other New Zealand and Europe. He quotes these as well. Because on that level, there is some conversation and some struggle and some encouragement. And now here's a guy at the helm who's saying, okay, let's run with it. We're like, well, we didn't expect you to take us seriously now, did you? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, you know, the past three years, COVID has been a great equalizer, a terrible equalizer in that regard. And I don't just mean in terms of everybody's life, but in terms of everybody was caught up in fear and mistrust and anxiety. So we have a tremendous amount of work to do to help people answer the very deep questions that they have they're not even able to articulate. By saying these, no to a financial system which rules rather than serves, no to the inequality which spawns violence, those kinds of things, like all of us want to hear that because all of us have been, have been ruined as it were. You know, even those who have prosperity, it's a whole lot less than it was and everybody suffered and continues to kind of still find their footing. And so this is a tremendously graced opportunity for us to look at that horrible experience and say, this is a chance to kind of build anew, to mm. kind of start fresh with a way of thinking that is much more universal and much more personal at the same time. And this document is almost 10 years old already. And so how much more we have to unpack this. There is, so there is much, much to unpack and yes. much that he has called for in this document that has not been yet fulfilled. Yes. 
I have my own copy here too. And I'm looking at paragraph 27. He says, I dream of a missionary impulse capable of transforming everything, Mm -hmm. not just culture and personal decisions, but also the church as an institution, the way it does things, its times Mm -hmm. and schedules, and that she be working towards evangelization of today's world instead of just simply self preservation. Yes. So he's looking for evangelical zeal. He's looking for newness. He's looking for creativity and in no way at the expense of the gospel. He's not looking to water down the gospel, to oversimplify the gospel, to change the gospel. I believe that he's looking to take that 2000 year old message and give it to a new audience, right? Uh, What's new about the new evangelization? The audience. Yes. Not, yes. You know, not the message. Correct. Right? But Correct. the audience is so different. The systems that we all take for granted and unconsciously subscribe to. He wants us to rethink those. He wants the gospel to infiltrate even these systems that we think are unchangeable and, and set. Or more frighteningly, we think are Christian because the new evangelization, the audience is a part of a culture that had at one time heard the gospel. Yes, And so we're not talking about the mission agentas to the people who have never heard the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's, that's one thing that very little has changed in that regard in a certain sense. But here we are talking to people. I think of members of my family who don't go to church unless there's a bride or a corpse in it. And yet they come right <laughs> to communion every week and they consider themselves strongly Catholic. They, like, they would argue with anybody who said, oh, you're not a Catholic. Even if I say you're not a good Catholic, oh, I am a good Catholic. I don't hurt anybody, you know, or whatever it might be. So we've had a whole redefinition of what things mean. As he goes on, he says, during the days after the resignation of Pope Benedict, but before mm-hmm. the election of Pope Francis, mm-hmm. when the cardinals were meeting daily for whatever they were doing, one of the things apparently that he gave in his little fervorino to all the cardinals, and this may have very well gotten him elected, is that he was challenging the church to not be self-referential. Uh-huh. And I think that, you know, we who are about the work of evangelization, that's why it's so encouraging to hear about the St. Paul's inside the walls is the offense, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the tip of the spear, as it were. But most of us who are involved in evangelization are involved in church programs, mm-hmm. uh, Bible studies. Things for the people who do go to church, but what they're a little marginalized when to get them a little more excited about it and stuff like that. And there's a danger of being self-referential. You know, we need mm-hmm. to create environments like St. Paul inside the walls or other kinds of on-ramps yes. in our parish situations. I could think of a few, Alpha, Christ Life, yes. different yes. kinds of things. That's an on-ramp because parish Bible study isn't an on-ramp for somebody who doesn't know what's going on. Adoration is on on ramp for somebody who doesn't know how to pray or any of those kinds of things. Not not even mass. Yeah, uh, no, so you're right. You're right. I, I think about I did campus ministry and young adult ministry here at St. Paul's for the last 10 years or so. And I have encountered undergraduates, 18, 19 years old. They've never been to church. Some of them don't even know the name of Michael Jordan, you know, the basketball player. Like these are fresh souls with no exposure to religion or to, you know, much of even American culture. They come to mass for the first time. They see candles. They see a priest walking with robes on. They see statues and it is the most foreign thing they've ever seen. The encountering people outside of the church is real work, real work. That's what Pope Francis is looking for the church to do is not stop what we're doing. That's already good. No, but 
to emphasize and prioritize the original purpose of the church, which is to, to go out. Yes. You know, Matthew 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples. He doesn't say, wait for disciples to come to you. Are you familiar with this book? I think it's by a, a Monsignor Shea from the University of Mary, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission. So I've heard of the book, and yes. it's been assigned in the program that I help run. Uh, okay. But I haven't read it, and I haven't uh, taught. Luke it's only about 100 pages. I have a nine-page summary of it that I wrote that I could send you if you like as well. Please, But yeah. he talks about that kind of thing that our approach has been too administrative and bureaucratic. Yes. Because it worked. Christendom is the fruit of successful evangelization. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's not putting it down, but we no longer live in Christendom, meaning we no longer live in a world where the dominant world imagination is faith driven. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so consequently, we have to kind of go back to a pre Christendom approach to living the gospel in a hostile environment. Yes. And so that's a challenge for us because in the new evangelization that we were talking about just a moment ago, the hostility is implicit rather than explicit. Yes. And consequently, it's not perceived necessarily as so. And it mostly comes across as indifference as yeah. opposed to outright you know, persecution. Oh, we take comfort in very tiny things. I remember I was in a parish for several years and ran a Bible study, about 50 people at the Bible study every week. And people say, isn't that great? I say, great. 2,000 people come through the place any given weekend. We have mm. over 3,000 registered families. Mm. 50 people are coming to the only adult faith formation opportunity we have. Mm. That's nothing. But we took great delight in these tiny little things, you know, or how many hundreds or thousands of people are involved in the process of initiation, RCIA, and receiving, entering into full communion and whatever. But meanwhile, we're hemorrhaging three times as many out the door. It's funny. I was just complaining to my boss yesterday about this. One of my major complaints about diocesan staff, diocesan workers, is contentment. And the Bible indeed does say contentment is great gain. And that's true. I think he's speaking more about economics, actually. Mm-hmm. Be, be content with your wages and, and yeah. your resources, <laughs> as John the Baptist would say to the soldiers, right? But I do not believe that we should in the church, especially as an institutional church, be content with where we are. And I think that zeal that Pope Francis is talking about, it would be the antithesis of of that contentment. I think that we should be dissatisfied with those 50 people at the Bible study and the indifference of what a wealthy country could do to a person's faith is a real issue that goes all the way back to the foundations of the Archdiocese of Newark. It was Bishop Bailey who first said that. All these Irish immigrants were coming to the United States. All these Italians were coming. They had a very hard time living out their faith in the American context. And he started rethinking the way church should be in the United States. He demanded that every Catholic child go to a Catholic school. Why? Because they would just fall into this ocean of indifference. That's the term he uses. And the only way that they would be able to understand and appreciate and live out their faith would be as if they were critical thinkers. This is what Pope Francis says. I'm in Evangelii Gaudium, paragraph 64. He says, in response to this indifference, we need to provide an education which teaches critical thinking and encourages the development of mature moral values. Pope Francis is against some of these 
giant systems that just turn people into mush. You know, the video games that the young people are, are just playing for hours and hours, the TV shows, like if you just watch one series of a Netflix, let's say it's 10 episodes and each episode is, is an hour. That's 10 hours just gone. Yeah. And you're no yeah. smarter. You're no better all into this trap of consuming. We're dulled while we might look at this and say, oh, that's ridiculous. I wouldn't accept that. Just mm. the fact that it comes into our consciousness and it doesn't outrage us is significant enough, you know. He says yeah. in paragraph 66, he begins to start to offer an environment that needs to be strengthened. that the family is experiencing a profound cultural crisis. In the case of the family, the weakening of these bonds is particularly serious because the family is the fundamental cell of society. Mm -hmm. The indispensable contribution of marriage to society transcends the feelings and momentary needs of the couple. Granted, there's some challenges with some ways in which you're trying to help the family, and that's not what we're trying to discuss here and now. But mm -hmm. point being, there is a realization that the family has been sacrificed on the altar of economy. The fact that one parent cannot earn a family wage anymore that mm -hmm. the necessity almost of a two income family and therefore the reduction of the size of the family and the attention to the family and the parceling out of the responsibilities of child raising and education. Yes. The lockdown where parents realize what they're being taught in the schools, the public schools in particular, and the revolutions that are occurring in some neighborhoods and some communities because of what has been the curriculum that parents have ignored. All this is of a piece as we even begin to think of ending this particular session, as he talks about challenges from urban cultures and the like, which is particularly appropriate for the environment that we're in, in, in the northern New Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, but then he goes on to the next section of this chapter, which I think is one of the most exciting pieces, which I think you and I need to get together and have that conversation. Uh -huh. We talk about temptations faced by pastoral workers, starting at paragraph 76. And he says things like, yes to the challenge of a ministry of a missionary spirituality. Uh, mm. No to selfishness, spiritual sloth. No to sterile pessimism. Yes to the new relationships brought by Christ. He gives something which I think is very, very, while we're talking about the challenges and the difficulties and uh, facing this culture that seems to be overwhelmingly opposed to the gospel, he also says, but we say yes to these things. They give hope to it for those who are seeking to be uh, engaged in this great work of being a missionary disciple. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the other piece of it. Evangelization, of course, is not the task of those who work full-time in evangelization efforts, but the Amen. evangelization is responsibility of all those who are baptized. It is yeah. no other responsibility. There's a charism given to the baptized and to the confirmed in particular to be effective. And I think that we have spent so much time talking about, I don't mean us now, but generally the big language is to be faithful, to be faithful, to be faithful, you know, even in your own little ways. God doesn't call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. <laughs> I reject that. Uh -huh. I reject that. He calls us to be faithful and fruitful. Amen. Faithfulness uh, without fruitfulness is not faithfulness at all. I think about the very nature of our being as humans. We are made in the image and the likeness of the us. Yes. Right? In, in, in Genesis 3. So the us being the Trinity. Yes. And that Trinity is that community of, within the person of God. I hope I didn't just commit some sort of heresy, but that, that community right? That, that God is and that happiness and that joy yes. of, of communion and community that God 
enjoys. There is no need for God to create anything at all, to be happy, to be satisfied. But there's something about the very nature of true godly love that almost requires sharing. I feel like a bad person if I discover a new nice restaurant and don't tell my friends. How about the right of every human being on the planet to know Jesus, their savior, their creator, the joy of the gospel. Everybody has that right. And who are we to not proclaim that? To keep our mouths shut would be the opposite of charity, the opposite of faith. To share the joy of the gospel is to be like the us, to be like the Trinity. Pope St. Paul VI in Evangelii Nunciandi that you mentioned at the very beginning, Mm -hmm. he says it is unthinkable that someone can have heard the gospel, given their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, receive the Holy Spirit, and not tell somebody. I think we're coming full circle now because, you know, we were talking about offense, and I would like to summarize Pope Paul VI's pastoral letter there on evangelization with just three words, encounter encountering the person of Jesus, mm-hmm. conversion, you know, changing as a result of meeting him, and then mission, right? Encounter, conversion, mission. Where does the parish fit into this? It's in the middle. Unless you were born in a parish, which is rare these days, right? Most people are born outside of a parish context, outside of Catholicism. The encounter is going to be outside of the parish. They come into the parish to be built up in a communal setting, to receive the sacraments and the grace of the sacraments, to learn, to be catechized, right? Mm -hmm. But then the mission component at the very end, that's again, outside. Yes. Right. So only one component of those three is in the parish context. This outness that I think we as Catholics need to accept. Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to kind of end this particular moment. Unfortunately, I do think we need to have a continue our conversation about this. I'm invigorated by it. I can see that you are as well. And so before we close uh, for the moment, is there anything uh, you'd like to uh, say? The only thing I'd like to say is that I have more to say. And uh, (laughs) we were just getting started on what Pope Francis has to say about economics, adjustments that he's, he's looking for at the personal level, at the ecclesial at the church level and at the global economic level. And I think that it is a major blind spot in the American church, the Catholic perspective on global economics. And I think that informing American Catholics is going to be critical for taking part in the future of the church at a world level. So that's something I'd I'd like to talk about hopefully in the future. Yeah, I'd like to do that as well. I just want to encourage our listeners, uh, do not be discouraged by the challenges that are there because Mm -hmm. they are just part of life. Everybody Mm -hmm. encounters the cross. That's another way of seeing these challenges as as a piece of the cross. And the cross is given to us so that we could experience the victory of Christ, not apart from that cross, but through that cross. So if you're experiencing any challenge or difficulty in your own lives, do not fear, have no anxiety, because the solution, which is Christ Jesus, in the life of the people of God that we are, is already present and is able to be applied to your life. We're going to end, we're just going to evoke Our Lady, because I think that she is the star of the new evangelization. It is through her that we have Jesus. And so we're just going to end with the great biblical prayer, which echoes the angel's greeting to Mary. When she said yes to this invitation, she was filled with the Holy Spirit and Jesus was conceived in her womb. 
may we say yes to this invitation that the Holy Spirit would bring Jesus alive in us. And so let's pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. This has been a production of the Heart of the Ark podcast, and there will be further podcasts coming, especially conversations with myself and Brian Hansberger. God bless you all in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. podcast is an initiative by the Office for Evangelization at the Archdiocese of Newark. If you want to find us online, you can find us at rcan.org slash evangelization. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Very soon we'll be updating our social media for the Heart of the Ark, but you can find us on Fireside Podcasts at heartoftheark.fireside.com. Our theme song is composed by and orchestrated by Eric Hunter, a dear friend of mine. You can find out more about Eric and his performances and compositions at Eric, E-R-I-C, Hunter, H-U-N-T-E-R, music.com. This has been a pleasure, and I look forward to hearing from you and speaking with you in the future.